Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9 to a very familiar verse to all of you. And it will help me, I think, if you were to have your Bible on your knee. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9 and only half a dozen words to start with. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Well, what a promise for every Christian believer here. I guess those words are meant a great deal to a great many of you, as they have to me. And what a timely promise for you, Paul, as you begin your ministry here. It's been very exciting this afternoon, hasn't it? But also very daunting for Paul as he begins a new chapter. So as you come to this great city and the significance here of work... This is the promise, Paul, that I bring you. I can't see you, but I think you're somewhere. Oh, there you are. <laughs> my grace is sufficient for you. I'm so old-fashioned that I'm used to my grace is sufficient for thee. But whether it's thee or you, brother, the grace is sufficient. I was taught in my youth that grace means undeserved favor. But there's much more than that to it in the New Testament. It means favor with all its saving and uplifting power. Between grace as favor and grace as operative power, no distinction can be drawn in the New Testament. The Hebrew mind, and of course Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, would never have drawn any distinction between them. So my favor and my strength is sufficient for you. But the question remains, and I'm going to ask it straight away, is it for real? Is it the whole truth? Let me explain. I was given for many years a Scottish calendar. It was a gift, and it sat upon just above my breakfast table. And every month, as I turned to a new month, a picture arrived of breathtaking scenery. Blue skies all the year round wonderful snow-capped hills, rivers in spate and happy anglers with salmon leaping out of the rivers into the net, Glasgow without rain, and the islands without winds. Now, I have no doubt that every photograph taken was honest and accurate. But taken together, I suggest it's not the whole truth. Uh, we were told just now that it was rare. I come up to Scotland at least twice a year for quite a long time. And so I would have to say that my calendar, though true, was not the whole truth. In the scripture, in the calendar, it was a scripture calendar, there was room in the corner for a fine text, usually in Old English, writing. And My Grace is Sufficient was obviously a favorite text, and it usually came every year. And it was very encouraging, as you came down to breakfast, to glance at the calendar and to see that great text, My Grace is Sufficient for You. But there was usually, on the calendar, no room for the whole text. That particular text is a jewel, and that promise is wonderfully true, but without its setting and without its context, it's not quite real. It's not the whole truth. So I want you to invite, invite you at the beginning of our time to look at the setting, and I'm going to read verses 7 to 10. And this is the setting in which the beautiful jewel is put, 
and we have to read it all together if we are to get for real what this promise actually means. Verse 7. To keep me from being swollen-headed because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, buffet me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now, my dear friends, consider a number of things with me. Consider first the extraordinary pain inflicted on this great man, Paul the Apostle. The thorn sounds like an agonizing splinter. It is also said to be a messenger of Satan, not, of course, without divine permission, but I think the powers of evil were delighted to have this opportunity, don't you? Here was a chance to disable the greatest missionary of all time. This splinter, this agonizing pain, a messenger of Satan, was a torment, constantly nagging and buffeting the man, day in and day out, excruciatingly painful. Consider, secondly, the extraordinary plea right from the heart. As you can see in verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord. It echoes, doesn't it, those heart cries from Gethsemane. Now I take it that Paul was no wimp. If you will just turn back a page, and I can't possibly read it all to you, but glance at chapter 11 and we'll start halfway through verse 23. Flogged more severely, You'll find, by the way, very little of this in the Acts of the Apostles. Flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. I don't have a calculator, and I've never been good at maths, but some of the young people can tell me afterwards if I'm wrong. But I make 539s, 190. That is 190... Uh, um, 190 um, lashes. Have you ever seen that on television in the Middle East when they put somebody up against a frame and lash him? It's almost too horrifying to watch. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea and so on. You know, I ask myself when I read that, how did that body survive? Surely 190 lashes plus all the rest, is just too much to bear. So this is a great missionary, a brave man. And yet here, at last, he's come to the position where he says, I can't take it anymore. I can't bear this. Thirdly, consider the extraordinary refusal that he received from his Lord. 
It's a very clear no. This is the Lord who loved me and gave himself for me. The tense of the verb means that it's a definite no. Decision is final and there's no appeal. No. I ask the question, did God want to cripple this greatest missionary of all time? Of course, there are folk today who would just say that Paul lacked faith. If he'd had sufficient faith, presumably that sickness could have been healed. But I make no comment on such foolishness. Fourthly, consider the extraordinary reason that we're given for this infliction, this terrible burden. Verse 7, the possibility of conceit. I must say, I can't imagine the, the apostle can you as a proud man. But when I think of the context of this particular letter, the Corinthians, of course, were a very boastful lot. I take it it's in that context that God is desirous that Paul should have nothing of that. He had received revelations that nobody else has ever received. He'd been drawn up into paradise. The reason apparently for this great thorn is that she should not be proud. But most of all, will you consider with me Paul's extraordinary response? I have to tell you that I've been in the ordained ministry now for, I think, 57 years. And I can't say that I could echo these words with complete sincerity and honesty. Is his response one of resignation? You remember old Eli when the little boy Samuel brought him the terrible news of judgment? Do you remember that? And Eli said, and I always think they're rather grand words from that old man. He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. Is that Paul's response? Does he simply resign himself, shrug his shoulders and say, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. Well, let's turn back to the Bible and see. Turn back to chapter 12, verse 9b. Uh, hold on to your seat. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Have you ever done that? Any minister amongst you done that? I can honestly say in 57 years I've never done that. I never got up in the pulpit and said I propose to boast of these things or write an article along those lines. And then look at verse 10. This is why, for his sake, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. Yes, even if my family is insulted in hardship and persecution and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. But my friends, this is crazy talk. Let's imagine a conversation between me and a football manager. I know it's extremely unlikely because I, <laughs> I hate a Premier football. If I, I sometimes dream at night that I was a referee, I'd have them all off the pitch before half-time with a red card. Of course, it would be my last job as a referee, but it would be very satisfying, wouldn't it? <laughs> Mr. Football Manager, it looks as though you'll be fielding a pretty weak side tomorrow evening. Oh, no, 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 Mr. Lucas. It's true that eight of my first squad have got swine flu. And I've had to bring in some teenagers who've never played in Premier Division. That's true. And, Mr. Lucas, I've lost my striker. He's been barred for a fortnight for attempted murder on the pitch. 
But you know, Mr. Lucas, you obviously don't understand football. When we're weak, we're strong. We fully expect to beat Manchester United tomorrow. <laughs> Crazy talk, isn't it? Now, I very much hope at this stage you won't understand the message that I believe God has got for us in this passage. It is not, I repeat not, that God uses us despite our weakness. That is platitudinous. It's obvious. The message is that God uses us in our weakness. That is the unique New Testament understanding of Christian ministry. It applies to all of us as individuals, to churches corporately, to pastors and preachers, elders, deacons, every one of us. So I propose that as this great new chapter opens out, that I would look at three particular weaknesses, difficulties, you can call them insults if you like, or hardships, that you are likely to face in the days to come. I could do ten, but I want my tea. First, the hostility of a secular society. I take evangelicals now, as I guess many of you do, and I sometimes turn first to the page called The World in Brief. And it is really a horror. Bangladesh tortured. Brazil faith-censored. China abolished. That was a house church. India stormed. Fifty Hindu fundamentalists stormed the compound of the Assemblies of God. Iraq murdered. USA atheists sue, Iraq bombs, Nigeria brutality, North Korea no pardon, India arrested, Pakistan a Christian businessman shot. Now honesty compels me to say that uh, I have known nothing of this in my 50 or 60 years of ministry. In the Anglican Church establishment you may be thought as a, of as a freak if you love and preach the gospel. But I can't honestly say that being regarded as a freak has ever done me any harm. And it isn't a very happy comparison with 190 lashes. True, in the future it may be a lot tougher to be a Christian and to be a Christian church in our increasingly irreligious society. It's going to be tougher in politics and public service, I'm sure. It's going to be harder to be a real witnessing Christian in many of the professions. Certainly it's going to be harder in the media to get a voice. It's going to be tougher in education for those of you who are teachers. And as the living churches speak up, and they're speaking up more and more today, I'm sure there'll be attempts to silence them. But we need to see the whole picture in a balance, don't we? We're not really facing persecution like, like that. Actually, Satan, of course, knows very well that he's got better weapons even than persecution. You know and I know that he has effectively crippled many of the great Protestant denominations of old, not through persecution from outside, but through betrayal from within. Isn't that right? Paul, you know that in America. You've seen it. Uh, 
Uh, I've been lecturing in Philippians 2. I gather you're doing a series on that. And I love particularly chapter 1, verse 12, and you will remember it. Now I want you, says Paul, to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And what has happened to him, of course, is prison. And if you read between the lines in Philippians, and not actually between the lines, you'll find that some of the Roman Christians felt, well, if God allows that, he can't be much of a Christian. He can't be the apostle that we've heard of. God wouldn't allow prison. So Satan will attack from outside and from within. And if you read the Acts of the Apostles, you'll see that he seems to do it alternately, sometimes from without, sometimes from within. The churches in the West have been virtually destroyed in the denominational sense by betrayal from within. Maybe they'll be stronger with tougher conditions without. One of the great lessons, of course, from the New Testament is that God is in control of what Satan does and that through Satan's work, God works mightily. Finally, of course, a man naked on a cross, utterly weak, forsaken by everyone, scorned the dregs of society in his day, but there is the power of God unto salvation to all that believe. There is the Savior of the world. So, my dear friends, in a hostile, patronizing, contemptuous, irreligious society which we're going to live in, and your children are going to live in, don't be afraid. The hostility of an increasingly secular society. Secondly, the revival and rivalry of a Corinthian-type Christianity. That's going to be a problem. Corinth was a great city. I've been doing some reading about it of late. The days of Athens were long past. It was the proudest uh, city in Greece. And therefore, a church plant in, Athens, in Corinth must have been a great joy, must it not? It must have been a jewel in Paul's crown, at least to start with. And you remember those wonderful words of encouragement, I have much people in this city. And as a result of that, Paul stays for one and a half years and works and makes strong foundations. Yet that is the most troublesome church that Paul ever had to deal with. Of course, he had problems with the public outside. The Jews, for example, they wanted signs and wonders and miracles. And the Greeks wanted wisdom of the world and probably wouldn't listen to anybody who hadn't got a couple of PhDs. But the real strain for Paul, and we can see this because of the Corinthian letters, two long letters and probably a number more, the real problem was that the Corinthian church leadership had been conformed to their culture and squeezed into the mold of their society. We all know the danger. All of us can be influenced by the world more than the world, uh, influenced by the world more than we influence the world around us. Let me just list for you very simply a few things about the society in Corinth and how the church took its color from that. Corinth was a city of pride and boastfulness. Self-advertisement was admired, amazingly. We like people to be self-deprecating, don't we? Claims to superiority were expected. 
I remember John Stott once saying to me many years ago that he'd had lunch with a famous Christian leader who throughout lunch talked entirely about himself and never asked anything about John or anybody else. That's very Corinthian. Conscious self-esteem is applauded. Man-centered in leadership and ministry. So very naturally, it's I of Paul, I of Kephas, I of Apostle. It's inevitable if you're immature. So the church had taken its tune from a society and become arrogant, superior to all others, and boastful. Secondly, Corinth was a city that valued eloquence and rhetoric. That's what you took your wife out for in the evening, to hear a great speaker, someone with communication skills. It was the technique of the salesman, that kind of voice that you pick up the, the telephone and it wants to sell you insurance, and if you make a few inquiries, you'll find that it's a con man. This is the brilliant speech of which Paul talks in the pastoral letters, 1 and 2 Timothy, and constantly says that the speech is empty, there's nothing in it. There's no nourishment to be found because you're not being fed on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's, in other words, spiritual junk food. So the church in Corinth became like its culture. Its new converts drew their inspiration from the social outlook of the day, whether it was music, manners, motives, or ambitions. Thirdly, Corinth was supremely concerned with wealth, beauty, and health. That's why it was so important for the athletes to be physically perfect. I had no idea until this last few weeks when I've been studying it how many games there were in Corinth. It wasn't Olympia once every three or five years or the Isthmian Games every other year. There were games all the time, and the athlete was the pick of the bunch. So naturally, salvation began to be preached very much in those terms of perfection and prosperity and beauty and that God would deliver you from anything that was different from that. Fourthly, Corinth was a place of great building and festivals, and these reflected, of course, and honored those who raised them up. But most of these great buildings, now of course only in ruins, were self-serving and for show. And above all, Corinth admired power, financial power, intellectual power, personal power, and social power. So no wonder that a church founded in Corinth, squeezed into that mold, had assimilated these ideas into an egocentric idea of Christianity. He was there for me, not me for him. And no wonder they were utterly dismayed by the Apostle Paul and his version of the faith. Was he really an apostle? He can't be. And was not his message pure foolishness? And nonsense. So first in the future we're going, to, we're going to be faced with the hostility of an increasingly secular society and this may present us with difficulties we've not faced before. We are certainly going to be faced with the rivalry of a Corinthian type of Christianity that will present us with great problems and perplexities and even with insults. We may even lose new converts to them, as I've experienced. 
Cultic Christianity has enormous attractions for the new convert who yet hasn't found his feet and for those brought up in a celebrity culture. There are two of the difficulties that we're going to face in the future and that you're going to need wisdom to deal with and you're going to need strength. Let me go quickly and finally on to the third difficulty that you're going to face in the future and particularly now we, march, we, we come in to, we focus in to our dear brother Paul. The pressures of authentic Christian ministry, the pressures of authentic Christian ministry. Now Paul quite clearly knows about pressure, just turn back a page for the last time and there are those remarkable uh, sentences aren't there in verse 28 and 29 of chapter 11. Beside everything else, beside all the flogging and the imprisonments and the nakedness and, and so on, beside all this I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Now I hasten to say that pressure does not belong to the Christian ministry only. I think we're all in it today. The nurse on her ward is under pressure. The journalist under pressure to get to the deadline. The teacher with an oversized class is under pressure. The wife and mother holding so many balls in the air at once, plus a part-time job. You're all under pressure, aren't you, today? And the pastor teacher is under a special pressure for which you are going to pray. That is to feed the flock week by week. And to do that, he has already and will go on finding pressure. Now, I'm not going to insult you, Paul. You've been at Spokane long enough to know that people waste your time, exploit your time, ask you to do things that really are not necessary, try to gobble you up in all sorts of different ways. I'm not going to give you advice about that. If you don't know this by now, you ought to. I'm simply going to say as I close that there is a great pressure in producing week by week day after day, the food that a hungry flock needs to grow into material. And I'm going to conclude by reminding you of, as we've had some lovely verses, haven't we, today? And I won't say that this is an even more glorious verse than the ones we've had, but it's one that's meant more to me in ministry, I think, than almost any other. And it is Colossians chapter 1, 28-29, and it tells us the meaning of pressure. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. It's so rich and it's so real. It's so true to life. So let me read it if I can find it. Colossians 1, 28. We proclaim Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Isn't that a lovely ambition? To this end, I labor struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. Now, friends, Paul knew what it was to experience the energy of the risen Christ powerfully at work in him. Did that make his pastoring and preaching Plain sailing, easy, like the preacher that I read of who said, I'm so busy I just open my mouth and God fills it. 
Don't go to his church. It'll be a waste of time. Will you look in this verse to see what the evidence of the resurrection power of Christ at work powerfully in this man actually meant for him? It meant, according to verse 29, I labor and I struggle. Again, that seems crazy, doesn't it? Sometimes early, I got up early on a Sunday morning and I used to work at my sermon and wonder if I could ever get all the uh, wrinkles out and get it straight before 11 o'clock. And uh, I was up early so nobody would disturb me and I would cry out, Lord, please help me. And I would expect then that I'd go, zzz, and the sermon would be finished. Instead of which I just went on laboring and struggling until five minutes to 11. That is reality. That's power made perfect in weakness. The evidence of the risen power of Christ at work within the pastor preacher is that he labors and struggles with all his might, working as hard as any laborer you see in the street, stripped to the waist, sweating, digging a hole in the road. That's the workman, isn't it? Well, he's a workman. That's what he's got to be. And why is he doing it? He wants to admonish and teach everyone with all wisdom so that he may present everyone who is in Christ perfect in the Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we are so grateful, I am so grateful, all of us here can only say from the heart that we would not be here today if it were not for your saving grace and your keeping grace. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that your grace is sufficient for our brother Paul, as it is for every one of us according to the ministry and the work that you've given us to do. So now we ask your blessing upon him as he takes up this work. May it be to your glory and our good, for your name's sake. Amen.